following message is from New Life Gillette series, Unlovable. This week, Pastor Mike presents part one of this series. Good morning. Let me say welcome to those of you who are watching online, to the guys over at the prison, to our friends at the jail. Uh, I got a question for you. Who do you hate? Like somebody. If you're... Or, or, or maybe, maybe we'll put it an easier way. Who would you just say is totally unlovable? Like you, the Chiefs? What? No. <laughs> Actually, after last week's game, I kind of felt like they were unlovable. But they... Uh, yeah, if you were to create a list of all the people that you would just say, nope, irredeemable, unlovable, nothing good about them, unlovable. Put them on your list. Uh, we're going to point at them on the count of three. One, two, three. Nobody, okay. Uh, I'm going to guess that I would make some people's lists, and I'm going to guess you would make some people's lists. And it can be anywhere from they did something terrible to me to they don't know how to park between the lines at Walmart. Anything good about you? Because that's terrible. Or what about the people who use COVID as an excuse for everything? Can't do my job. Sorry, COVID. I'm like, what does that have to do with you just do your job? So, or, so it could be something extreme or it can be something small. But the reality is if we're going to create lists like this, we also have to recognize that there are probably some people creating a list that would include us. Probably some other people who would put us on their unlovable list. I know of a couple people I'm on their unlovable list right now, and it's all I can think about. I'm an Enneagram 3. I don't know if you know anything about the Enneagrams. Threes are like way overboard concerned about what people think of them. Threes think way too much. If somebody is mad at me, that's just, it consumes my mind. I don't care if there are a hundred people happy with me. If there is one person mad at me, it's all I can think about. I can't sleep at night. One person is complaining about something. There's somebody in my life right now who's really mad at me and uh, she's just totally shut me out and it's like, there's nothing I can do. And last night, zero sleep. All I can, what can I do? How can I make it up? How can I change what I did? And the reality is I sometimes say some controversial stuff up here. Sometimes I screw up and I say dumb things up here. And, um, and the whole time I'm making, I'm making somebody's list. And I apologize. So as a three, as, as somebody who, who knows that I've got some enemies, I am unlovable to some people. I have to remind myself on a regular basis that I may look unlovable, I may do unlovable things, I, I, I may be unlovable in some areas of my life, but in the midst of my unlovableness, I am loved. See, that's encouraging to me, that's helpful to me, that helps me persevere in my life, that helps me keep moving forward, uh, especially as somebody who's so dependent on the love of other people, that, that I just, I need that to move forward. We're starting a new series today called, anybody know? Unlovable, exactly. And uh, this series is all about your neighbors. And this series is all about you. And this series is all about largely your enemies. And all the people that scripture tells us are very hard to love, but we are called to love. How do we love unlovable people? About everybody in the world makes somebody's unlovable list. I want to kind of use this picture up here on this, uh, this screen, kind of as a metaphor that we're going to use all the way through this series, because I think this picture is absolutely beautiful. Because I think that picture tells a story without having to know anything about this situation. Because you've got two trees here. 
One of the trees, somebody decided not worth having the tree, just chop it off, we'll just let it die. Well, the tree didn't want to die. And so the tree has no roots, nothing redeemable about it seemingly, and the tree just seems like it just needs to be discarded. It is totally unlovable, except for the tree next to it that saw some value in it. We're going to personify these trees. In Scripture, we have this uh, metaphor of how we are branches that have been grafted into Christ, have been grafted into the vine of Christ. We've been adopted into the family. And so this, this tree, everything that it gets for sustenance, its life comes from this larger tree. It is completely dependent upon the larger tree for life. And we're the same way. We are this smaller tree. Now, we think, may think that we're, we're living a decent life, and we may think we're okay just eating and doing the things that normal people do, making money and all that stuff to survive, but we all recognize that living the way everybody else li lives just eventually leads to death. Unless we are grafted into a more long-lasting tree, a more long-lasting life. And the metaphor breaks down because we recognize that we have not only been grafted into the life of a tree that's going to die someday. We have been grafted into the tree of an eternal being, an infinite being who holds all things in his hands. We have been grafted into the vine and everything that we have for life comes from him. We can earn nothing. We can do nothing apart from him because we recognize that our entire life is dependent upon him. And for the true Christian, for the true disciple, our life is a journey of recognizing more and more just how dependent upon him we are. This tree has no roots. This tree has no ability to sustain itself. So it has to look to the other tree. I want to introduce you to somebody today. This, this lady's name is Sister Boudier. Uh, she is a nun. And Sister Boudier is 91 years old. She's a marathon runner. She actually didn't start running until she was 48 years old. And when she started running, she realized, actually, I'm pretty good at this running thing. And, and she started running more and more. And she started making a name for herself in the running community. In fact, the running community started calling her the Iron Nun. Because this lady can run forever. 91 years old, still running. One time she spoke at the opening of an Ironman event that she was competing in, and, and she enters the Ironman event, and they see her name on the list, and, and they call her and they say, hey, would you be the speaker at our event we're doing the night before the Ironman? And so uh, Sister Boudier is speaking, the Iron Nun is speaking at this uh, dinner the night before the big Ironman event. And this is one of the things she said when she was talking. She said, when you are out there tomorrow speaking to the computers, and you hit a dark moment, and everyone hits a dark moment. Remember that you are loved. You were loved into existence. Now, why talk about love when you're talking about competing? Well, why is it necessary for Sister Boudier? And, and how is it that love somehow has given her motivation in her running? Like they seem like two very disconnected things, right? But what we begin to recognize in our lives as we live our lives, that when we are without love, we just become drained 
that our energy, that our life, we just get drained more and more of life. And it is love that gives us the courage, that gives us the energy, that gives us hope to push forward in dark times, to push forward in hard times. When life beats you down, you have to know that you are loved. And Sister Brudier says that you were loved into existence. What does that mean? Before you were born, before you did anything to earn it, you were loved. You were created intimately, knit together in your mother's womb for a purpose, on purpose. You were built and you are loved. When Jesus was ready to start his ministry, when he was here on earth, he went to Galilee, to the Jordan River, to be baptized by John. And later he would tell us that we all should get baptized. And so he's setting an example here. It's a really significant event that's happening in the life of Jesus. And I, and I think that he wasn't just doing this for him. In fact, later he would tell us, you all should get baptized. If you're a follower of Christ, he says, you should be baptized. And so if you're a Christian, I... You just, just have to take a pause for a moment and say, are you, have you been baptized? We're doing in our next baptism on January, sorry, December 5th. Um, that's coming up quicker than we think. And so if you'd like to be baptized, let us know. You can fill out a card in the chair in the back of the, uh, or in the pocket in the back of the seat in front of you, or let us know online um, that you want to be baptized and we'll sign you up for that. Because there is something very important that happens at baptism. It is a statement to the world Hey, I just want to let you know, world, that I'm not who I used to be. The old life, the old person, the old me died. That's the symbolism of being going under the water in baptism. Died and has been, I have been resurrected. I now have a new life. I am a new person. And that's kind of the message that Jesus was sending with his baptism. Jesus was saying up to this point, he was just kind of private with his ministry. In fact, sometimes he would be like, don't tell anybody that I did this cool thing. Don't tell anybody about the things that I said. Keep it hush-hush. And then he gets baptized, and all of a sudden he's going public with it. Now he's announcing to the world, just to let you know, things have changed. But, but, but John didn't like this idea too much. He tried to talk Jesus out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, John said to Jesus. So why are you coming to me, I felt the same way when I've baptized people here at New Life. Usually it's people who are getting baptized later in life. Maybe they got baptized as infants uh, in a different denomination, and they realize, actually, we need to do believer's baptism. We're, we need to follow the example of Jesus Christ. I need to get baptized. So they end up getting baptized later in life. And so many times I'm baptizing people, and I'm like, I am not worthy. I, I'm, I'm going to do this baptism thing because I've been commanded to do it, but this saint should be baptizing me. And this is the experience that John is having in this moment. But it is not about the person baptizing is what Jesus is about to tell John. It's about the statement that is being made by the person who is being baptized. But Jesus said, it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. There are a lot of uh, Christians who use this passage to say that, that God requires baptism for salvation. And I've looked into this, and I do not believe at all this is what Jesus was saying. He's not saying that God requires baptism for salvation. What he's saying here is that God set up this situation between John and Jesus long before either of them were born. This has been the plan all along. All throughout the Old Testament, we see prophecies of this voice yelling in the wilderness, 
who would prepare the way for the Messiah, who would prepare the way for Jesus. They were prophecies about John the Baptist. And John the Baptist went out and he did exactly what he was prophesied to do. And he gained thousands of followers. Thousands of people called themselves disciples of John the Baptist. And when Jesus came along, a torch had to be passed. A a baton had to be passed from John the Baptist to Jesus. And this is how it was going to be done. This is what God is requiring for this torch to be passed. Because when that torch was passed, now all of a sudden the private, quiet thing that was happening behind the scenes with Jesus became public because all of John's disciples were handed off to Jesus. All of John's followers became Jesus' followers. And all of a sudden, Jesus is now not some nobody teacher. Jesus is now a leader of a movement because all of these people who were following John are now happening to, are now following Jesus. John was prophesied to prepare the way for Jesus, and he did it. So in a way, when I baptize you, or when Pastor Paul or, or another pastor baptizes you, what's happening is we're signifying the passing of a torch. The passing of a baton. Now you are no longer just somebody who got a, a, who prayed a salvation prayer. Now you have a mission. Now your ministry has begun. It's all just symbolism. It, it's just a metaphor. It's a statement to the world. But now I have a calling on my life to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Now you have a calling on your life to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. Now, the Holy Spirit is not literally a dove in the movies, that the cheesy moment where the dove, it's not literally a dove. It's descending like a dove. So the Holy Spirit is coming down from the clouds and only a few times in Scripture do we see this kind of interaction between a human and God, where God actually opens up the clouds or comes in the form of a fire or walks in the garden with with Adam and Eve. There's only a few times when we have like this kind of actual physical connection with God happening. And so this is a very momentous event. And the Holy Spirit is descending out of the clouds in this moment. And then on top of that, a voice from heaven said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. So you got the Holy Spirit there present, and then you've got God the Father speaking from heaven, and the God the Father from heaven says this about Jesus. This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. And I think the timing of this is so incredibly important. That's why I just read this whole passage to bring us to this point. God the Father has just communicated with humans. And what is his message? Well, it's kind of the same message every time God talks audibly to humans. It's a message of love. And his message is a message of love specifically for his son. Of unconditional, unearned love. Jesus brought joy to God. God the Father, before he even started his ministry. For Jesus did all the amazing things that we read about in Scripture, and he went out and taught these incredible things and gained more and more followers and did all these great things. Before he died on the cross, which was his mission all along, God says, 
I love you. And if you have a good dad, some of us got that opportunity and some of us didn't. If you have a good earthly dad, then you brought him joy before you were born. God's love is not earned. And God gives you grace even before you are born. Even before you do anything to earn it, God gives you his grace. Even before, even while you were still sinning. In our Wesleyan circles, we call that prevenient grace. Grace that comes before our actions and reveals God's love for his creation. Now, you have to accept God's forgiveness. That's not what we're talking about right now. You have to allow him to save you. You have to invite him in. But what we're talking about is grace that goes before that even allows that interaction to happen. The sacrifice that comes before that allows you to even consider the idea of Jesus. Salvation comes and forgiveness comes when we ask for forgiveness. But God's grace makes it possible for you to recognize your sinfulness and ask for forgiveness. The temptation in believing in God's grace is to start to think that there are no consequences for our actions. So we've kind of got to do a balancing act here. We talk about God's incredible grace and the, the amazing things that he did for us before we earned anything, but that does not mean that our bad actions have no consequences. In fact, our actions definitely have consequences in this world and in the next. The way we live, the way we interact with people, the way we treat people definitely have consequences in this world and in the next. But we're not talking about entrance into heaven with our actions. In fact, the Bible says that the Lord disciplines those he loves. He brings on some of the consequences for our actions. Why? Because he wants what's best for us. Because he loves us so much that he knows that sin will harm you. That sin is not good for you. And it is out of his love that he disciplines. It is out of his love that he allows those consequences. The Bible even shows us that our actions in this world affect our actions in the next, in eternity. Jesus says, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds, their actions. Sometimes we're tempted to think that heaven is a reward for the good works that we do. But there will be a reward in heaven for good works, but it is not entrance into heaven. You know, we live in a world that is not too keen on the idea of us calling Christianity exclusive. Some, Jesus says that he is the only way to heaven. He is the only way to the Father, which is an exclusive claim. There's no other way. Nothing else works. You can try to work your way there. You can try to worship other gods. You can try all different kinds of things. You're never going to get to heaven. His offer is completely exclusive. However, that does not mean that anyone is excluded from the offer. Yes, he is the only way to heaven, but he is available to everyone. There is nobody that is removed from that offer. It is given to every single one of us. When a first responder receives a phone call because somebody's in trouble. By the way, we're doing a first responder Sunday next Sunday. Invite a first responder. 
get them here. We're going to give every one of them a free gift for coming uh, to church that Sunday. We're going to do some special things to recognize first responders in the service. And when a first responder gets a phone call of somebody in trouble, the dispatcher answers the phone. Yes? Um, I need help. I can't breathe. Well, they're not saying I can't breathe. I need help. I broke my leg. Well, how good have you been lately? Tell me about your actions lately. Tell me about the things that you've done. How much have you volunteered lately? They're not quizzing them in this moment to figure out, is this person good enough for me to come rescue them? No, they get the call. They hear about somebody in need and they drop what they're doing and they run to help. That's what they do. They're very Christ-like in that. Now, there is a moment though when that first responder shows up and you have the option to say, you know what, I think I'm fine. I, I don't think it's a heart attack. I think, I think I'm fine. I'm going to refuse your help. You have the option of saying, I don't need help, or I don't think you can help me, or I don't think you have the right tools to help me, or I, think you, I don't think you actually want to help me. Well, you can say whatever you want and reject that help. That does not change the fact that they offered the help. I think this is a picture of our relationship with God. We, we did nothing to earn his arrival onto the scene. But we sure can reject his help. We sure can reject his love. That is the, the choice because he loves us so much, he gave us, gave us that option. I have two sons, and they are unbelievably different from each other. Lincoln is five years old. Titus is two years old. And my five-year-old has quite an obstinate streak in him. Like, he just, he'll do things just to see what happens. He'll push his brother down just because. No reason, didn't do anything, just shove him over. And so Lincoln is pretty regularly getting in trouble for things. And, and uh, getting Lincoln to apologize, he acts as if I'm beating him. I am beating him into submission when I require him to apologize to his brother. He can't stand it. Like to try to get, get to humble himself enough to say, I'm sorry, is just so hard for him to do. Now, my young, younger son, Titus, and I know they'll probably change multiple times throughout their life. Right now, he, could, he wants to say sorry so bad. If he does something wrong and I use as a stern voice, it's like, uh-oh. He immediately, he, he starts saying, Dad, can I, start, can I say sorry? Can I say sorry, Daddy? Can I say sorry? I want to say sorry. Can I say sorry? And he instantly, I'm like, just let me tell you what you did wrong so that you can say sorry. He just wants to say sorry because he's like, I don't like the tension. I don't like disagreement. I don't want to get in trouble. Let's just, can we forget this happened? I'm sorry. Can I say sorry? He says that all the time. And so my two sons interacting with them is very different. Trying to figure out how to parent them uh, is, is a challenge. And many of you have experienced the same thing in parenting your children. Well, the other day, we had a particularly hard day with my older son, Lincoln. He's just getting in trouble all day long. Like, have I done anything today but tell you stop? Like, it's the only thing I've done. You are now not allowed to do anything, so you might as well sit in the middle of the room because you've been grounded from everything type of day. You've been there. And so Lincoln's had one of these days, and I'm putting him to bed at night. And I said this, the, the same thing that I say to Lincoln and Titus every single night when I'm putting them to bed. Every single night, I say, I love you forever and ever, no matter what. We, every night, we sing, Jesus loves me. And we pray right before I 
leave, I say, I love you forever and ever, no matter what. And a lot of times I just say it. Like now it's just a habit. I, I just say it. And this time Lincoln responded. He caught me off guard. And he said, but do you love Titus more than you love me? And my heart sunk. Did I do something? Did I say something? What did I do to, imp- to imply to my son that I love his brother more than I love him? And what I discovered after talking to him a little bit is Lincoln was doing exactly what we do. We assume that our actions somehow affect our relationship with God. We, Lincoln was assuming that because he got in trouble more, and I probably raised my voice more with him than with Titus, that I loved Titus more. We associate love to actions, naturally. And all throughout Scripture, we see Jesus begging us not to. We see Paul begging us not to. Disconnect those two things. Because my love, and this is what I told Lincoln in the moment, my love for you has nothing to do with how many times you got in trouble today. I love you forever and ever, no matter what. And I mean that when I say it. No matter what. I can't love Titus more than you. I love you because I can't love you anymore. I can't love you more than I love Titus because I can't love him anymore. My lo- I'm, I'm at the peak of my ability to love with the two of you. It gets no higher. But here's the good news. That's because I'm flawed. That's because I'm a sinful person. That's because I'm broken. There is a peak. There is a height to how much I can love. At some point, it's limited. And I'll get it as high as I can, but at some point, it's limited. But your heavenly father, despite of how you were, despite how you were loved by your earthly father, your heavenly father has no peak to his love. You cannot comprehend the amount of love that your heavenly father has for you. Despite your actions, despite what you're doing, I, I don't care what you've done in your past that makes you feel unworthy of his love. Yes, you are unworthy of his love. That is why his son had to come and die because you are unbelievably unworthy of his love. But he is so good and his love is so great that it is not affected by your actions because our actions are so small, because our lives are so small. But the God of the universe, the one who spoke everything into existence, stopped everything to come to the world to die so that you could receive his love. To prove to you that it has nothing to do with your actions. Because while you were still sinning, Christ died for you. In fact, before you were born, before he knit you together in your mother's womb, before he intimately made you exactly as he made you, he died for you. Before you did anything to earn it, he loved you unconditionally. And that is why we call him Heavenly Father. He's not just Father. He's perfect Father. He's eternal Father. He is infinite Father that we cannot comprehend, who will do greater things than we can ever imagine. And He has given us the ability to be with Him in eternity. So the only thing that we can do is say, I accept it. Thank you. Thank you for showing up, first responder. Thank you for giving your time to me. Thank you for giving yourself to me. I need your help. And we recognize that all of us are sinners. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And all of us are in desperate need of the forgiveness that is given to us by the God who gave his life for us. Thank you, God.